On this episode, I'm speaking with Thibaut Mannequin, partner at Seawall. Growing up in Baltimore City, Thibaut wrestled to understand why we as human beings seemed so divided. He continued to ask himself what causes the divides that separate races, cultures, and communities, and what can be done to bridge them. Since 2007, Seawall has been an impact-driven company made up of passionate social entrepreneurs who believe in reimagining the real estate industry. They also believe that all facets of the built environment should be used to empower communities, unite cities and help launch powerful ideas that create important movements. Tebow is also the author of Larger Than Yourself, released in 2021, and as he would say, most importantly, a passionate husband and father. Please join me in welcoming Tebow. Let's jump into the conversation. All right, Tebow, thank you so much for joining me today. Welcome to the show. Chris, honored to be in the space with you. Really excited for this conversation. Thank you for having me. Yeah, me too. It's been uh, it's been fun getting to know you in recent history. I've uh, been following you for a long time, so I'm excited to jump in and tell your story to the listeners and the viewers because I felt like I only knew bits and pieces of it, and now that I know more about it and and uh, have come to understand sort of where you've come from and your viewpoint, um, it's really connected the dots. So I'm excited to jump in and. I always like to start with childhood upbringing and, and any formative experiences that happened as a kid. And I know that you told me about two in particular. So I would love to start with those moments to just sort of roll out the story and get going. Yeah. So I had two really formative experiences that came at a pretty young age, both around 10 years old. The first one was we were finishing up a beautiful family home cooked meal. I have three younger sisters. And my parents took my three younger sisters and got ready to put them to bed. And they asked me if I wanted to stay up later and watch a movie with them, which was the ultimate like big brother move to just it's yeah. like to watch my sisters go to bed and get to stay up late with my parents. And so once they were in bed, we uh, met up on the family sofa in the living room. And the movie that they put on was a movie called Mississippi Burning, a really powerful movie that takes place during the civil rights era. Um, in the deep South. Um, and there's this scene about halfway through the movie where a mob of the Ku Klux Klan is gathered outside of this black church and lights are off on their trucks. They're hiding behind trees and this church service gets out and the black parishioners make their way out. And this mob of Ku Klux Klan attacks them. And it was just really violent. Um, I can remember it in my body more than I can in my head. Um, but mm. there, towards the end of that scene, there's this little boy that's kneeling that appears to be about my age and he's praying and he's just praying that this is going to end. Right. And this guy from the Ku Klux Klan comes up and kicks this boy as hard as he can. And at 10 years old, that's all I could take Chris. And I sprint yeah. out of the room and I run up to my room and I bury my head in my pillow. I'm sobbing uncontrollably. And I remember my mom comes up and she sits on the end of the bed and she puts her hand on my back and she doesn't say anything. She just holds space. Right, allowing me to feel whatever it was that I was feeling is the first time that I remember asking myself, how is it possible that it, one human being could treat another human being this way because of the color of their skin for any reason, really? Mm -hmm. And it was the first time that I really remember asking myself, why are we so divided as human beings? The second really transformative experience happened probably three months after that. And my parents put all four of us in the family station wagon. And my dad said, we're going to go participate in something really special. And we drove, I don't remember where we ended up. We pulled over the side of the road and there were hundreds of cars. And then we get on this like larger road. It must've been some sort of a highway. 
And there are thousands and thousands of people on this highway. And my dad explains that we're there to participate in this day, which was called Hands Across America, which was an attempt for millions and millions of Americans to link hands from the East Coast all the way to the West Coast in an attempt to raise awareness and money for the fight against poverty. And I don't remember a lot about the day, but I remember joining this line and linking hands with complete strangers from as far as I could see to the right, as far as I could see to the left, this like human chain. And it was the first time I remember asking myself, what is this force, this one thing that has brought millions of people together at one moment in time for one thing? And what are the creative ways that we can bring people together? So at 10 years old, these two questions start growing in me, which are why are we so divided as human beings? And what are the creative ways that we can begin to bridge those divides? That's so fascinating because, um, you know, as a kid, I, I remember moments like that, um, although not as viscerally as, as you, you do clearly, you know, I think back to like earth days and stuff like that, where we would be out on the playground and everyone would link hands and we would sort of hug the earth and, and have moments like that. But I, I, ne I never did experience something quite like that as a kid, so young. And one of the things that I, I asked you to think about when we spoke last time was, do you remember sort of that type of thought process standing out as a kid in terms of just the mindset of, of a, as a 10 year old? Cause I think back to, you know, when I was 10, you know, and, and those are big thoughts and big feelings and sort of big internal moments of dialogue happening. Was that an outward thing at all? Or was that primarily an inward thing that you were sort of, thinking through and grappling with as a young kid? It was an inward thing, Chris. You know, I mean, at 45 years old, this rolls off the tongue a little bit better, right? I mean, I didn't have the words to express those questions at the time. Um, and it was only in this deep self-reflection that I've had over the last five years that I was able to kind of tap back in again. Like I remember very little about it. I just remember how I felt in those moments. I remember the deep sadness and uncontrollable tears as a result of watching the movie. And I remember how I felt as a result of it. And I felt remember feeling the incredible joy and the sense of possibility mm -hmm. during the hands across America day. But it's not like we drove home and I was like, Hey dad, thank you for bringing me here. I'm really fascinated by what are the forces that bring diverse people together? Um, and, right. you know, after the movie, I didn't sit my mom down and like Thank you for this experience. Um, it's furthered <laughs> this question around how we can, you know, why are we so divided as human beings? But um, as I reflect back on it, I watched how I interacted with that over the years. I watched the things that I gravitated towards that subconsciously, right? Cause so much of what we do as human beings come from our subconscious but subconsciously were propelling me forward and putting me on these paths, whether I was aware of it or not, to find the answer to those two questions. And yeah. certainly now, as I've gotten a lot older, um, I'm very intentional about it. But, you know, at 10 years old or 12 years old or even 15 years old, I didn't have the tools to know how to express that in the way that I can today. And, and as a, as a kid, 10, 12, 15 years old, you, you mentioned to me that you were working a bunch of different, uh, jobs trying to like figure out what that 
what that place was for you as you were exploring and kind of figuring out your place in the world as a teenager? What were some of those jobs? And, and I think you had a specific reason and, and, and um, you were sort of trying to prove something to someone. And, and I know that you can articulate that much better than I can, but, but paint, us, paint, paint that picture for us. Yeah. So, you know, one of the, the big struggles that I've had throughout life, one of the things I've wrestled with is this concept of privilege, you know, white man grow, growing up uh, in an upper middle class family that was deeply respected in the Baltimore circles. And it always bothered me that there was an expectation that things would come easy to me as a result of that, you know, and part of that is kind of highlighted in this quest to answer that first question. Why are we so different and why are, why are, what are the, why are we so divided? Um, and I, um, I rem remember really thinking and feeling how uncomfortable that was. And I wanted to prove probably mostly to myself, but also to maybe those around me that I didn't need any handouts. Um, and that no matter what anybody thought about my family or the upbringing that I came from or what I did or didn't have access to, I wanted to prove that there was nothing that I couldn't get in this world without my own sweat and hard work. So at a really young age, I just started hustling, you know, um, where probably at maybe 12 years old, I remember organizing my first sports camp um, where all of the younger kids from the neighborhood were like five or six or seven in the summertime for a week, which felt like three months for me at the time. Yeah, the parents would send their kids across the street to our home, right? It wasn't a major deal, but it felt like at a time. And I don't know, maybe it was... 50 bucks to spend a few hours with me per day. And, you know, we'd run through sports, uh, soccer drills and basketball and softball and all these things. I was just trying to keep these kids activated, engaged and busy. But at the end of the day, I was trying to make money. Right. Um, and you know, that, that went fine. Uh, and I ended up doing a lot of work with that over the years, but at 13 years old, I was a commercial painter for this painting company a painter would be a generous way to describe my responsibilities. At best, I was the blue tape guy, right? Yeah. Um, and, and so for three summers, I worked as a, as a painter, and then I worked in construction in, in high school. And it, I was talking to somebody else about this the, the other day. It's this concept of um, letting somebody know how they're doing. Right. So mm. I didn't know any different. I was a painter and I had the worst job. I was the guy that scraped the paint off this one house for the summer. I didn't even get to touch a paintbrush. It was hundred degrees in Baltimore. And from seven in the morning until three 30, when we finished, like I just scraped without pause this home. And I remember my mom was picking me up from the painting shop at the end of the day where I would end up. And I was cleaning some stuff in the shop. And I remember the boss of the painting company, I overheard him talking to my mom. He's like, that boy over there is the hardest working employee I have. There isn't a single thing that he won't do. And everything he does, he's got a huge smile on his face. And he's grateful for his time here. And he's thirsty for more. And he's teaching the real employees of this company how to show up. And I didn't know that I was showing up any different than anybody else, right? It's, it's these positive words of affirmation. Um, and that began to lit this, light this further flame in me that it's important to show up and it's important to give 
a hundred percent of what we have every single moment of every single day. Yeah. Uh, so I don't know, a little bit of a winding answer to, to, to the question, but I didn't want any handouts and I wanted to prove to myself and, and maybe to the world um, that, uh, that I was really committed to, to, to showing that. Thanks for listening to this episode of Transforming Cities brought to you by Authentic. Authentic delivers premier multifamily brand experiences and smart digital marketing. Our proven approach aims to accelerate leasing velocity, boost rental rates, and increase long-term value. Simply put, we see brand as a business asset. You can find out more at AuthenticFF.com. No, I think that makes a lot of sense. And and it sort of dovetails into uh, this story that I think in many ways, started to define that idea a little bit further for you and your family. Um, and it had to do, and I think it ties into, to growing up in Baltimore and, 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 and everything like that with the, um, racial inequality that you were seeing and, and sort of a part of, and, and sort of trying to, to, to figure out for yourself. Um, but it has to do with, a a story about a homeless man, um, that you're, that you were, you know, semi-familiar with that your mom approached and then um some would say the rest is history but this is quite the story i I can't say i've ever heard anything like it i would love for you to um to tell that story and and, because i do think it ties in really well to what you just said and um you just made a comment about how your actions at that home scraping paint was actually teaching the others lessons that they didn't know that they needed to have. And I think in an interesting way, this next story, right, started to teach you and your family lessons that you didn't know that you needed to have as well. Yeah. So we, we grew up in Baltimore city until I was 12 years old. And then, uh, with my younger sister and my, uh, the, the house we were in got really small and, uh, we moved out to Baltimore County and, in our new home, it was next to this shopping center. And I guess my parents had gone out for a date at this restaurant at the shopping center. It was a bitter, cold Baltimore February, minus something degrees. Yeah. And they're leaving the restaurant and they're walking back to their car. And on this bench at the shopping center is a homeless man curled up on the, in a, um, on the, on the bench. And, you know, my mom lets go of my dad's hand and, and humbly walks over to this man and, um, you know, asks him his name and he sits up and he tells her his name's Charlie. And she asks him a little bit of, about his story as best she can in the freezing cold of the moment. Um, and she leaves her phone number as she's kind of walking away. And she said, if you ever need anything, you call me. My mom is my hero in life, right? She, it's almost impossible to describe her heart uh, and her, her ability to give to others. So anyway, she goes home and uh, can't sleep that night, spends the whole night tossing and turning in the comfort and warmth of her bed. And around 2.30 in the morning, gets out of bed, realizes she's not going to sleep, grabs every sleeping bag and blanket and pillow that we have lying around the house. And she drives back to the center and she wraps Charlie up in blankets and gives him some pillows and 
and she has a blanket for herself. So she's going to try to stay through the night. She doesn't make it through the whole night, but she stays for hours just oh, wow. with them um, and ends up going back to, to, to home to kind of prepare us for school the next day. And a week later, uh, the phone rings and it's a woman says, hey, there's a guy here named Charlie Barbro says he knows you. My mom gets on and she says, yeah, I know Charlie. And uh, so Charlie gets on the phone and says, can I come home with you? So my mom doesn't flinch. She drives to the shopping center. She puts Charlie in the car and she brings him home. And wow. Charlie spent the next 20 years living with our family. When, we, when he moved in, we started to get a little bit of his story. Um, no one knew how old he was. He didn't have a social security card. He worked as a sharecropper on uh, some of the farms in that area before it got developed. Most said that he was probably about 100 years old when he moved in with us. I think he was probably in his mid-80s, but there was no real documentation of that. And Charlie had breakfast with us. After breakfast, on our way to school, we'd drop him off at the shopping center where he thought he worked. Um, we'd pick him back up on our way back from school, and he'd have dinner with us, and he had his own room. And Charlie became a member of the family. And this story catches a lot of people off guard. Some yes, positively maybe. and some negatively. Yeah. As children of my mother's, none of us ever flinched, right? It was never a question of why was this happening. It was, of course, this is this, this is happening, and uh, and really, what an honor to be able to 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 play some small role in in Charlie's life. Um, you know, I I I tell this story because I know that we did a lot for Charlie, and especially my mom. Right? And I, you and I could have a whole podcast on the stories that have come from okay. Charlie. Mm. Um, and Charlie did so much for us. You know, Charlie taught us how to look at the world in different lights, how to not pass judgment. How many homeless men and women have you driven past, Chris, in your lifetime? And how many right. stories yeah. have you told yourself as you've driven past them? How many assumptions have you made on what you know about them? And it was a beautiful lesson for us at fairly young ages. I was 12 or 13. My youngest sister was four. Um, and it was also a beautiful lesson of not listening to what the outside world tells us we should think, feel, and how, how we should show up to it. Mm. You know, so many people called my dad and said, this is crazy. You've got three young daughters. You brought a homeless black man into your home. This is unsafe. This is not what you should be doing. Um, call social services or something. And I just remember my mom calmly saying that that wasn't an option. <laughs> Charlie was a part of the family. Yeah. And, you know, throughout my life and yours too, there's so many people who will show up and tell us what we can't do and what we shouldn't do because they're reacting to the judgments that they have and the stories they've created without at least trying to walk in the shoes of somebody else at least attempting to listen deeply to someone's circumstances. Mm. And, um, you know, Charlie basically died in my mom's arms at our home, um, well over a hundred years old and had incredible impact on us as a family and incredible impact on the hundreds of people's lives he touched who would come into our home and get a piece of, uh, part of Charlie's magic. Yeah. Well, that, um, 
even the, I've, I've heard that story a couple of times now, and, and I still just don't quite know how to respond because it's such a monumental story. And I think I was saying that it must live sort of like in the halls of the, the family history. And I'm sure you have like a, quite a few photos framed in, in memory of, of that experience, which is obviously, uh, incredible for, for you and your family. Um, so that, I mean, that started for you really when you were a teenager, as you said. And, and, and so I'm, I'm curious if that started to propel you in, in any particular direction as, um, a young man heading, heading to, to college and, and kind of having a, a sense of, okay, I want to, I want to end up here. Or, you know, this is like, I want to go into real estate, like, uh, like, um, your father had, and like, did you have a, a compass at that time? knowing your history and, and, and kind of having some of the, the learnings literally in your house by way of Charlie and some of the, the magic that that was creating. Um, and not to sort of over, you know, dramatize anything, but I, I think there's, there was so much happening there. I'm curious if you had an idea of like, this is where I want to go next. I, I had no idea what I wanted to do. Certainly at the, at the time, what I, will say is that it furthered the depth and the quest to answer those two questions. Why are we so divided? What are the creative ways that we can bridge those divides? So I made my way through middle school, eventually high school and off to college. And with every day that passed, as I continued to ask those two questions, I realized that I was further away from an answer to them. And it wasn't for lack of trying. It was because our world is complicated. And we are really divided. And the further along we get, <laughs> the harder it is to bring us together because we've grown even further apart for reasons I just couldn't understand. And so throughout those years, I continued to put myself in positions and situations where I thought I might answer those questions and I continued to fail miserably. And so it got to the point where I had graduated college. I had no idea what I wanted to do. I was the worst student. I graduated from college because my girlfriend in college was the smartest person in the entire school and literally number one. And my strategy was to take the class that she took the semester after she took it so she could help me pass. Um, uh, school was not my thing. It was people and connectivity and the drumbeat of this passion collect passionate collective that like we could form. Uh, with some intentionality, but I was scared to get into the workforce. I fumbled through a bunch of interviews, but I really remember graduating and not being really clear on what I wanted to do other than the fact that I knew that in some small way, I wanted to change the way that the world turned and I wanted everything that I did would do to be in service of the quest to answer those two questions that had been so elusive mm -hmm. up to that point. Mm-hmm. So you embark on a journey that takes you uh, halfway around the world, kind of probably felt like all the way around the world, but um, it, it didn't happen as a one, two, three, bam, you're there. There was actually a, a concept that was already underway in Ireland, I believe, that um, you, you eventually took to Africa with a friend of yours. Um, what was that? concept and and how did you plant that in africa so i believe in life we have two choices we can sit on the sidelines 
hoping that somebody else is going to do the heavy lifting, rooting for them, sometimes rooting against them, right? From the comfort of our bubbles and behind our screens. Or we can understand that if we really want to make positive, lasting change a reality, we need to become a part of the solution. And I kind of felt like while I didn't, never really thought I was sitting on the sidelines, I wasn't doing enough. And I had been in Costa Rica helping to set up a United Way office down there, uh, which is really entrepreneurial and uh, learned a ton throughout the process. But I heard that a buddy of mine who I had overlapped with at Lehigh University was in Northern Ireland working with a program that would use the sport of basketball to get Protestant and Catholic kids in Belfast, this very divided city in this very divided country, um, meeting each other, finding common ground through sports and hopefully over time becoming friends. My friend Sean um, had loved the idea, thought he could do it better and thought he could do it on a global scale. And he wanted to bring the program to South Africa. So he had started that process and he had was, I think it was on his first trip to South Africa. And I had heard that and I emailed him. I didn't even know if he'd had an internet connection wherever he was. This was in the internet cafe days. We didn't even have phones. And I said, Hey, you know, it's been years since we've connected. I, I, I heard you're um, helping to start this really cool program. Would love to connect. And he was on his way back to DC and we ended up sitting down for like a four hour lunch. He was telling us me all about this program, all about his early experience in South Africa, the power of sports to unite. And I think I resigned from the United Way that very next day mm. um, with nothing but love, but understanding that this was closer to the alignment, to my purpose, to my mission in life, to understand why we're divided and find creative ways to, 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 to bridge those divides. Yeah. So I got with him and his older brother at the time and really dove in deep to launching this program that at the time was called Playing for Peace and the name changed and it's called Peace Players Today. But the idea was really simple. We would go to really divided, war-torn countries and we would use sports to get kids from both sides of the conflict, meet each other, find common ground and hopefully over time becoming friends. So Chris, we raised $8,000 from friends and family, which was enough money to get back to South Africa right after the fall of apartheid. Um, and, you know, kind of showed up to South Africa, I want to say without the foggiest idea of what we were doing, but really driven by a couple things. One was a deep understanding that this concept, this idea of sports to unite wasn't ours, that it had always existed. Think about the Olympics for hundreds or thousands of years that have brought athletes and civilizations together. And, and you can list hundreds of examples of that. So it was really important that we weren't showing up to South Africa claiming that this idea was ours, right? The second really important thing was not showing up to South Africa saying that as a couple of white guys, we had the answers to solve centuries, generations, decades of war, hatred, right. division, and violence. Absolutely. Our job as social entrepreneurs was to show up and be quietly behind the scenes helping the people of South Africa mold this program in the way that would resonate with them the most and have the deepest impact. So, you know, the, with this humble approach to how we were showing up, really clear that the idea wasn't ours and that it was really moldable at the time. The program really started to take off. 
You know, we had, uh, we had thousands of kids trying to join the program. We had dozens of schools who wanted to participate, white schools and black schools. We had countless coaches coming out of the woodworks to coach. We actually called them change agents because they were so much more than just basketball coaches. And they weren't showing up to coach the sport of basketball, which is a relatively new sport in South Africa at the time. They were showing up because this new sport of basketball was being reimagined so that done differently with a completely different approach would have a shot at changing the way that their country worked, right? And they would be in the driver's seat of what that change would look and feel like. Yeah. So, you know, the program is just propelled forward faster than any of us could ever have imagined. The success of the program turns out cost a lot of money. And as busy as we were raising <laughs> yeah. funds other places, we were, the bank account in South Africa was getting really low. And one morning we get a call and it's Nelson Mandela's foundation. And the woman on the other line says, on the other end of the line says, President Mandela is a huge believer in the power of sports to unite. And he's heard about your program and he wants to become your organization's largest supporter. So we go from very little credibility, a lot of momentum, and then Mandela's money, but most importantly, his name and recognition behind us. And the floodgates were just opened, right? We That's, were invited wow. to the program in South Africa, exploded. We were invited to replicate the model all over in the world, in the Middle East with Israeli and Palestinians, in Northern Ireland. We continued the program with, with uh, Protestants and Catholics and Cyprus and Yemen, right? Fast forward to today, the program has worked in over 22 countries, the 22 of the most divided countries on the planet, worked with over 100,000 kids, trained over 2,000 volunteers, coaches, change agents, um, and has just become such a global movement for good. Uh, that it was, um, it was fascinating to be along the ride, along for the ride during the, the growth of that, uh, that organization. I have to imagine that that phone call from the foundation was sort of mind blowing. Cause I mean, you, you were young, you're still young by the way, but you were very young, new in your career, you know, things were, things were happening, but to get a phone call like that, to just change and open those floodgates must've been quite the incredible experience to um, just see kind of like the fuel, you know, added to the fire to further grow that mission. I think that must've been an incredible feeling. Look, it was an incredible feeling and it wasn't, there's no way to describe it. That feeling pales in comparison to the feeling of getting in my car driving to the township of Umlazi, the second largest township in South Africa. Townships are these black informal settlements that the white regime during apartheid took blacks and put them in. There was one road in, one road out to control, to control movement. Um, shanty towns at best, um, where we did our finest, most inspiring work in these townships throughout the country and gather our coaches uh, who lived there. Uh, who had grown up during apartheid and tell them that Nelson Mandela had just called and that he believed in them and this program that they were creating in the tears, Chris, right. And the, the feeling that we've, that, that they had, that, that their work really mattered um, and that they were invincible and that all of the can'ts and no's that they'd heard really throughout their lives, but certainly in, in connection with this program, all the people who told us that, 
peace and reconciliation through sports in South Africa was impossible. Um, all were washed away in that moment as they received the news that yeah. Mandela was now their biggest supporter. Oh, that's incredible. Yeah. That, uh, that makes me think about this transition that you had as this program was taking off. And, the, and there are so many moments in your story so far that, um, that when I first heard them out, you know, I was like, Ooh, you know, that's, that's a big, that feels like a big deal, <laughs> you know? And, and this one is similar to that. You know, you have this thing that's taking off, but you end up around two, 2006, finding yourself actually back in Baltimore and back in the old family house, back in the old bedroom. You know, it's like, how did I get back here? Um, but there is a, a very important shift that occurred there and it, and it, it ties directly to the divisions and, and the work that you were doing over, over in Africa and in other countries, but actually very much focused in on this, on your hometown. Um, what was that transition like? Cause I know that there was like this moment for you where you were awake in the middle of the night, couldn't sleep. You were back, you know, like I said, back in your old bedroom and, and, and kind of the, the next step I, th I thought was really fascinating, but, but very touching in, in a way that um, clearly has, has been paving the way for your visions sort of since then. Mm, yeah. So, so I, I basically spent six years living around the world. I had a backpack and I was bouncing from country to country, setting up this infrastructure for the program. Probably some of the highlights of my life, right. And the, amount that I learned. And then unexpectedly, as you said, I ended up back in Baltimore. What was probably meant to be a deep, uh, a quick stop. Um, and I'm at this beautiful love, loving home cooked meal, which I hadn't had in way too long. Mm -hmm. I end up back in my room and I'm tossing and turning and I can't, I can't shut my mind off. There's something that's nagging at me that I can't quite figure out what it is. Sun comes up the next morning. I haven't slept a wink going through culture shock and jet lag. I'm tired. And I grab the keys to my car and I put some clothes on and I just start driving and I end up on North Avenue heading West in Baltimore city. And my car as if it was an autopilot pulls over to the side of the road at the intersection of Pennsylvania and North Avenue for the listeners who aren't from Baltimore this is the intersection that nine years later in 2015 would be the epicenter of the Freddie Gray uprising in our city. This was a part of Baltimore, although I grew up less than three miles from there, that I had been made to believe my entire life that I wouldn't be welcome in and I wouldn't be safe in. Right or wrong, that was the narrative that existed then and that continues to exist today. So I'm pulled over on the side of the road and I turn off the ignition and I go to reach for the handle to get out. And I have this panic moment where I ask, actually ask myself, Chris, will I be safe? And is this a good idea? And I remember getting furious with myself. I shake it off um, because I, if I had one of the most important lessons that I learned around the world, and I kind of learned this early on from the Charlie lessons from, uh, from, from him and my mom, is that we can never pass judgment, right? It's what we had talked about earlier. Um, and that true growth, the answers to the questions that keep us up at night only come on the other sides of our comfort zones. And I had seen it 
in the South Africa, the amount of white people that told me that I should never go into a black township or rural area that I'd be killed or kidnapped or even worse. Um, in the Middle East, people tell us you couldn't go into uh, parts of the West Bank or in Northern Ireland, parts of the Falls or Shankill Roads. There was always that narrative of the things that society told you you couldn't do. And what I had realized through my work around the world is that those are the places where the most growth happens. Those are the places where we find, at least begin to find the answers to the questions that bug us. Mm-hmm. And so I shake it off and I get out of the car and I start walking around. And, you know, Chris, I saw all of the things that society told me I would see. The collapsing buildings, the boarded up homes, the liquor stores on the corners, the drug dealers, the clients of the drug dealers nodding off at the intersections. But I knew that there was so much more to this community that I hadn't experienced yet. So I kept walking and about 10 minutes into this walk, I have these two realizations that just punched me in the face. The first was that America and particularly my city of Baltimore are more divided than all of these so-called war-torn countries where I just spend so much time and energy. We have an inability here to have open and honest conversations with people who don't look and feel like us about our similarities and especially our differences, like hard stop. Right? And I felt mm. that that was a ticking time bomb, that it had been and it would continue to be if we weren't able to find a way to address it. The second realization was that real estate, the control and ownership of land, is the most powerful connected industry on the planet. Whether we're aware of it or not, it touches every single one of us every single moment of every single day. The schools we send our kids to, the parks we play in, the shops we shop at, the homes we live in, the streets we drive in have all been meticulously planned out and thought through by the people who control and own the land. And the realization was that even, or especially with that power and connectivity, historically, the real estate industry has done more to divide and keep us apart than actually bring us together. Mm. So um, now I'm furious, right? I've just spent all these years all over the world (laughs) um, with this realization that my city is even more divided than all these places. And the industry that my family was in, the real estate industry, that I had missed this for all of these years. How had I not seen it? How did it take me going to see how the ownership of land and the control of it separated the blacks from the whites in South Africa through the township system? How did it take me spending time in the Middle East, understanding the fight for land in Jerusalem between the Israelis and the Palestinians and then having this almost out-of-body experience in West Baltimore, uh, in my own hometown, realizing the juxtaposition from where I started that morning to where I ended up less than an hour later, mm-hmm. um, and not having the foggiest clue of how we got there. And so I, I kind of start to make my way back to the car. Honestly, I was almost sprinting back because I felt this idea starting to grow inside of me that I wanted to grab a pen and a pad of paper to begin to write some thoughts down as they were uh, as they were becoming more clear by the minute. And and similar to this four hour lunch that you had with your buddy back in DC years prior, you have this four hour dinner that ends up occurring with your dad shortly after you have this epiphany moment in West Baltimore even if you didn't want to have to have that conversation with him about real estate, about this thing that 
since you were a kid, you were like, no, I'm proving myself to not necessarily need to be associated with this. I, I'm, I'm my own man. I'm my own at that time. I'm my own boy, but I'm, I'm, am my own man building this thing for myself. And, and yet all, all roads, uh, pun intended lead back to this, this dinner. Um, and this was a very important dinner for you because it was where seawall was born. But how did that dinner play out for you in, in your memory? Mm-hmm. So I get in my car after this experience in West Baltimore. And I want to be really clear about this sensitivity of the story that I've just told. I've always been really aware of the privilege that I have to be able to go into any community that I want and leave whenever I want, you know, and that isn't the case for everybody. Um, And I've I've always been really aware and sensitive of that. So I don't Mm. take the telling of this story lightly and the privilege that I know that I have to be able to make the decision of where I show up for how long I show up and in what Mm -hmm. context I show up in. So I get back to my car and and, um, I'm scribbling down notes and I realize that there's only one person on the planet that can hold the space that I need them to hold in this moment. And I call my dad, my dad tied with my mom's my greatest hero, (laughs) right? He's just the most humble man you'll ever meet. Super passionate about community and, kids and education and listening and, and uh, just been a, a hero and role model to me my entire life. And I say, dad, I've just had this really incredible experience. I'd love to share with you. When can we meet up? And we agree to meet up for dinner. And we're at this nondescript outback steakhouse in some suburban shopping, suburban strip shopping center. <laughs> nice. <laughs> and you know, I'm trying as best I can to share with him the experience that I've had. And I, what I really want to do is I want to ask him if he'll start, help me start a real estate company. And and as you said, I was adamant my entire life that I wanted nothing to do with real estate. It felt like something that would have been handed to me on a silver platter. It was the expectation. At least I thought of everybody in my circle that that's where I would end up because it's what my family had done for forever. It was low hanging fruit. It was the path of least resistance. It was, too easy. So I never wanted anything to do with it. I didn't like the long hours that I saw my dad work. I felt like it took him away from me at a young age when I needed him the most. Mm. And I was just convinced that I would never go near that industry. But with this question that had started to grow about real estate's role and actually keeping us apart, it was a question that I needed to ask. So at dinner, awkwardly, I tell my dad the story and I ask him if he'll help me start a real estate company. It probably didn't roll off my tongue and the delivery was terrible, but I remember my dad sitting back. And so he had spent 25 years in a family run real estate company. And when I had left to go start the peace players program, he had gotten out of real estate altogether and he had gotten into public education in Baltimore city. He was so passionate about the importance of, providing incredible education for the future generations of our planet. His first job out of college, and he had studied to be a first grade teacher. And that was actually what his first job was. And he had gotten sucked into the family owned real estate company. Um, And when he had found a window to get out, he gladly got out of real estate because it becomes so focused on how much money you could make and how fast you could make it. 
it had become so focused on transactions and not relationships. Mm -hmm. And that was the opposite of the reason that he woke up every morning and the reason he had gotten into the business to begin with. So as I asked him if he'd help me start a real estate company, he sits there, I clearly caught him off guard. The silence felt like an eternity. My dad has this way of like locking his eyes into yours. And I'm, so I'm sweating. And he says, I have no interest in getting back into the real estate business. And now my heart's broken. I'm trying not to cry, right? It's taken all of the courage to even ask this question. And if the first silence was long and awkward, the second silence that ensued was twice as long and twice as awkward. And then, at, you know, moments later, he says, but I would be really interested in helping you launch a company that reimagined the real estate industry. Now he's speaking my language, right? I'm on the heels of the Peace Players program where we had reimagined the basketball industry. It had nothing to do with going to foreign countries and trying to find the next NBA superstars and profiting off their success. It had very little to do with even the act of dribbling and shooting a basketball. It was all about how a round ball in the sport reimagined could bring kids from war-torn countries together. Yeah. Um, how we could create incredible leaders as a result of it. And mm -hmm. here my dad was saying that the real estate industry, this thing that I wanted nothing to do with, but I had just had this major realization was the reason we were so divided to begin with, could be reimagined. So for the next four hours, not even touching our food, Chris, we're riffing back and forth, sharing our lived experiences of how community is created, how ideas are grown, how to humbly lead quietly behind the scenes, letting everyone else shine. And at the end of that dinner, we stand up, give each other a huge hug and agree to move forward with the launch of Seawall, whose mission was to use buildings to empower communities, unite cities and help to launch really powerful ideas. I love that. I, I didn't want to interject that passion with the question about the food at Outback and how much you ate that night, but <laughs> you answered that question for me. So, so thank you for doing that. Um, but so for the listeners that don't know too much about Seawall, let, let's set the stage. I mean, you just kind of riffed on the mission of, of the company that first evening, which has now extended, uh, gosh, coming up on a couple decades in a few years here, what type of projects did you think about, um, engaging with early on? And, and maybe said a different way over the years, what types of different projects have you engaged with before we jump into a few specifics? Yeah. So, um, you know, the projects needed to be in line with that mission of reimagining real estate and empowering communities and, and uniting cities as a result of the work that my dad had been doing in public education with the Baltimore city school system he was hearing from all of these teachers who were new to Baltimore. A lot of them were coming through programs like Baltimore City Teach Residency and Teach for America. And they were these first year teachers were showing up to Baltimore for the first time without the foggiest understanding of how Baltimore worked, um, where to live. Uh, they had five days to figure it all out. And they were making poor living decisions. Then they were getting thrown into the classroom in Baltimore's um, in Baltimore City, and they were getting burnt out during the day, and then they were getting burnt out at night, and they were quitting. 
were just giving up on their classrooms, on public education and on Baltimore altogether. And they were flying back to Colorado or New York or LA or wherever they had come from. Mm. And a bunch of them were saying to my dad that it would be really neat if there was a well-located, affordable, funky apartment building to house teachers new to Baltimore. And, you know, my dad, the being the listener that he was, loved the idea. Simultaneously, there were a bunch of nonprofits that were underpinning the success of the Baltimore City school system. They were housed in dozens of buildings all over town with no ability to really collaborate, share resources and ideas because they weren't under the same roof. And they were saying similar things. If, you could, if there was a, a building where we could kind of all be located together, we'd have greater impact on the kids in the classroom. And so we knew that our first project would have something to do with housing for teachers and office space for nonprofits. So we started going around all over Baltimore looking for little four unit apartment buildings that could get renovated and fixed up for a couple of teachers or little 5,000 square foot office buildings that could get fixed up for a couple of nonprofits. And after three or four months, we just continued to strike out. To the point that I didn't know if our company would make it. We're four months in. We don't have a project to, to, to speak of. Uh, there doesn't appear to be much traction. And the phone rings. I feel like my life story is a series of phone calls. I was going to say. <laughs> it, this was not yeah, Nelson Mandela. It was, it was a buddy of mine, uh, Sam. And Sam says, there's a building in Baltimore City at the corner of Howard and 26th Street, a neighborhood called Remington, which I had never heard of this neighborhood before. And he says, the building's 150 years old. It's been vacant for 30 years. Every developer in Baltimore has walked through it and passed on the opportunity because of the condition of the building, of how complicated development is in that community, and because nobody can make the economics work. The bank is in the process of foreclosing on a developer from DC who bought it because he didn't know anything about the community oh, and geez. couldn't make the project work. And Sam says, this building's perfect for the idea you guys are looking for. And I'm like, I'm, don't know, I still don't know the first thing about development. I'm like, even that doesn't sound like a good idea to me. What a <laughs> terrible sales pitch. But Chris, we have nothing to lose, right? And so we agree to meet Sam and the banker at this building, which was the old HF Miller and Son tin can manufacturing facility. And so my dad and I pull up early on whatever the day was. And in front of us is this massive, looming, 100,000 square foot collapsing factory building. Trees are growing out of the roof. Every single window is boarded up. Bricks are falling out of the facade, actively falling out on the facade onto the concrete below. Oh, no. Buildings surrounded by abandoned homes and buildings, lifeless streets. And so we do this lap around the building because we've got a little time to kill. There are rats, Baltimore City rats, the size of small dogs that are scurrying in and out of the massive holes in the foundation. And so I look at my dad and like, this can't be the <laughs> what this can't be the right thing. So we make our way around, and, and Sam and the representative from the bank are there, and the banker's in this crisp suit, hair slicked back to the side, does not look like he belongs in this community. 
And he looks, takes one look at us and he says, are you guys sure you want to go in? And, you know, we've kind of come this far. So we say, yeah. And you go to the back and there's this massive like 10 pound chain and lock on this huge wood door. And he opens the lock and with a giant kick opens the door and he's got one single flashlight, this like strobe of light that goes into this building and bats are flying around. Pigeons are flying around. We've obviously disturbed the ecosystem that exists in there. And we take this cautious step in it's, kind of pitch black and we start to make our way through the building and there are with every like turn there's a soiled mattress surrounded by heroin needles and booze bottles and three quarters of the roof and ceiling had kind of collapsed in you could barely walk in most of the building and, and the bankers going off on this building you wouldn't catch me here ever especially after dark best thing anybody could do would be tear down this building no one would ever want to develop here um, he's going off on it. And I begin to tune him out. You know, I've heard this narrative all over the world of the people who are only able to see what's in front of them in that moment and not what something could be or not what something ought to be. Right. And so I begin the process of not listening to this banker. And I begin to actually fall in love with this building. I had noticed the massive 14 foot ceilings, the heavy timber structure that exists, the beautiful brick walls, the huge window openings that have been boarded up, but with new windows could be incredible. And I have this transformation as we're walking through and we get an hour later, we're back on the street. We say our goodbyes to the banker and to Sam and my dad, take another look at my dad. And I could see the like glimmer in his eye and, he's gone through the same transformation. We give each other another massive hug mm. and we know this is going to be our first project, Chris. Mm. So over the next couple of weeks, we start bringing our most trusted advisors and friends and real estate people who feel like they know what they're talking about for tours of the building. Over a dozen of them. Every single one of them tells us we're crazy. That, we, that the building's too far gone, that this neighborhood will never work, that you'll never be able to make the economics work and keep the rents low for teachers and nonprofits. Even our wives come for a tour. And my dad tells this really funny story of on the ride home with my mom. After the tour, she says, Donald, if you buy this building of all of the dumb things you've done throughout your life, this will be the dumbest. But again, that was the, you know, that was the sign off right there. That was the, that that was was the, the motivation we needed. <laughs> um, but again, I'd heard the cans and nose around the world you know, and I'd come to appreciate the significance of them, especially when they come in that quantity. Um, and I also knew the importance of to get on the other side of them, that whatever the idea was that we were going to be part of helping to grow, that we had to build it inside out, yeah. meaning that the end users, the community and the team that would be in place had to all feel the same sense of pride of ownership in authorship and was in what was going to be created. Right. So you okay if I can't kind of keep going here? Yeah, no, I was going to say, I was going to say, tell us the name of the project. And, um, I would love to hear where it, where it landed. Cause I know this was a really important project to get seawalls yeah. vision yeah. off the ground. Yeah. And cause I want to go from that and then jump to what currently is sort of the other the other bookend, which is yeah. similarly exciting and fascinating, but, but let's, yeah, let's, let's keep going here. Yeah. 
So we understand the massive lift in front of us with all of these people who say it's impossible. We start the process of building from the inside out. So we send out, and that means starting with the end users who are the teachers and the nonprofits who are going to be living and working in the building. So we send this email out to about a thousand Baltimore City public school teachers, which basically says, anybody interested in creating stunning class A apartments at deep discounts for teachers, meet us on the corner of Howard and 26th Street for this tour and focus group. And so we show up that morning. It was a Saturday morning. And by like 9.15, the last of 10 straggling teachers have like shown up. Um heartbroken because I think hundreds of teachers are going to be there. But 10 was the magic number and an incredible 10 it was. And my, my dad stands up on this, hops up on this curb and he gives probably the most inspiring impromptu speech I've ever heard. And he says, for years, I've watched how hard you all work in the classrooms. And there's a group of your peers that have asked to create affordable housing for all of you uh, who are doing this really important work in our cities. Um, we have no idea what we're doing in this project. There's a building behind us, he's pointing to the building behind us, that reimagined might become, reimagined by you could become the country's first center for educational excellence. And we'd love to give you a tour and see if you're, and, and pick your brains to see if this is something you wanna do. And he says, so who wants to go in? And the cries of like, hell yes, and let's go yeah. felt like a passionate speech from a coach at halftime where his team was trailing in the championship game. And so, so we go to the same door and we kick it open. And we've got flashlights for everybody. The difference on this tour, Chris, was that we weren't the ones leading it. The teachers were effortlessly skipping through this building and they could have pointed to all of the negative things that everybody else saw, but they pointed to all of the incredible attributes of this building. Look how high the ceilings are. Look how big the window openings are. Look how cool that courtyard would be if you took out the forest that exists in it today. And so we end up back on the street and they're talking about, this is going to be so cool when we pull it off, right? So it was that sh subtle shift and that invitation from my dad for them, for this to be their project and not his, right? That, yeah. that, uh, um, that leveling of the playing field where we weren't showing up as real estate developers telling somebody what we were going to do. We were showing up as curious and passionate entrepreneurs who wanted to see how the groups who would be in the space would mold it to fit their best needs. We did the same thing with these group of nonprofits who were really interested in. Before we knew it, these teachers and nonprofits were all in. They spent a year with our design team. They designed every square inch of the building they chose their own rents, they picked their own amenities, and they laid it out in the way that would work best for them and for their, their peers and colleagues. So with the wow. teachers and nonprofits, the end users bought in, we did the same thing with the community. And we showed up to this cinder block church in this neighborhood where there hadn't been any development in over 50 years. That any attempt at development, wow. the community had run out whoever the developer was. Apparently without rhyme or reason, um, so this is part of the reason that most said that development in this neighborhood of Remington just wouldn't work. And we're sitting in the back and the president of the association calls us up. I'm so nervous. My dad appears to be so cool. And we get up to the front and my dad kind of does it again. Right. And he says, we want to be really clear that this is your building, right? This isn't ours. There is a group of teachers and nonprofits 
who have come up with this idea to create the country's first center for educational excellence. They've looked, we've looked all over town for a building and we've landed up at this building at the heart of your community, which we understand has been vacant for a long time. Um, this only works if you help these teachers and nonprofits figure out what this should become. Is this something that would be interesting to you all as a community to having within your space? So the hands fly up all over the place. People are, this is exactly what we want for our community. This is the development we'd always been hoping for. Towards the end of all of the praise for this idea, this young man in the back stands up and says almost defiantly, I thought he was going to bring this project crashing down. He says, this is great and all and would really resonate with us here in Remington. But if you build this building and it's just offices and apartments, we, this community, won't be able to actually go inside the four walls and participate in the finished product other than looking at it from the street. Right. If you take the corner of Howard and 26th Street, which was scheduled to be a little two-bedroom apartment, and set it aside for a coffee shop, a little cafe, it'll, there'll be a place for us to get grab a cup of coffee together and a decent bite to eat and share ideas. So I start thinking, this is the worst idea I've ever heard of. The corner of Howard and 26th Street was not a place that anybody would ever want to walk to. Oh, we had it programmed to be this beautiful little apartment for teachers, which is the reason the project existed to begin with. And here is this, this guy from this community asking us to take an enormous risk on something, a retail shop, which just would not work there. And I catch myself, Chris, being that naysayer, right? That person who can only see what's in front of them in that, not, not in that moment, not what something could be with the right amount of love and, and, and attention. So I shake that off and we thank him for his kind of feedback and agree to give it some serious thought. And we did, we went back and I'll, I'll come back to the, to the coffee shop story because uh, it's really relevant. Um, the communities are bought in, the teachers and nonprofits are hundred percent bought in. And the next thing to do is make sure that the team, our guardian angels are equally as invested and excited about this project. Cause we've just learned that the total price of the project to build it would be $20 million, which is mm. in and of itself, wasn't the end of the world. Um, it was probably $19 million more than we thought our first project would cost. The problem was that because of the low rents that the teachers and nonprofits wanted to pay, we could only afford a $6 million bank loan. So we had this $14 million gap in our capital stack. And so we circled up with this incredible hero of ours, this guy, Bart Harvey, who was a disciple of the late Jim Rouse, the creator of Enterprise Community Partners. And we gave him the same tour and we ended up at this little diner down the road and we basically said that we had this huge problem. We had a massive gap in our funding stack. We had no idea how to fill it. The momentum was contagious for this project to move forward. Um, but we were really at an impasse. And this guy, Bart Harvey, was the, probably one of the most creative thinkers around how to create, how to, how to finance really complicated projects. And he says, you've got nothing to worry about. I've got your back. He starts telling us about new market tax credits and historic tax credits and low interest loans from states and cities, all these things that we had no idea. The meeting ends and then the next week, the phone starts ringing off the hook because Bart had started the process of reaching out oh. and uh, uh, to his peers around the country 
who specialized in this and everybody wanted to participate in the growth of this movement around this, creating the country's first center for educational excellence. But then like a few months, that gap had been completely eliminated. All $20 million was in place. We closed financing. Wow. We start construction the week before Lehman Brothers collapsed in 2008, right? We might have, like, we might have timed that in a good wow. way. We might have timed that in a bad way. We had no idea what was going to happen. Wow. And uh, within, not, within three months of starting construction, nine months before the project finished, 100% of the building had been leased, all of the apartments and all of the office space. By the time we finished construction, there was a waiting list of over 300 teachers waiting to get in and over a dozen nonprofits who we would completely run out of space for. And it had nothing to do with us, right? It was because of this groundswell that had been created because the teachers, the nonprofits, the communities, and the end users, the banks and the lenders and the investors all felt the same sense of pride of ownership and authorship in what was being created. They weren't, it didn't get leased because of us. It got leased because of the momentum that, uh, that this exciting idea had, had generated. Um, and uh, so, so really long-winded story of our first project uh, and, and, and how we got started. I'll, I'll pause here for a minute. I know you wanted to get into some of the, the future work, but I want to see if you had any yeah, questions. Yeah, no. I, so the name, the, what did the name end up being for that first project? It was called Miller's Court. Miller's Court. And we will be sure to link that in the show notes. So because I'm sure everyone will be jumping to that link to click it, to, to check it out, to learn more about it. Um, that was a little bit long-winded, but in the best way possible, because one of the first conversations you and I had was, I want you to tell the story, the good, the bad, the ugly, the ups and downs along the way, because we just don't get that very much in the world of development. Um, and there's a lot to love about the world of, of development, but that's one of those things that I, I wish there was mm. more of, right? The realities behind what it takes to get there. Um, but I want, yeah, and I do want to skip to the most recent project and get a synopsis of that before we start to wrap up, because I think it's this incredible, as I said, bookend of the work that you've been doing with Seawall. More recently, Lexington Market is a project that you said essentially makes up two decades of lived, shared experiences. And I know it means a lot to you. I know it means a lot to your, to your company. Can you give us a rundown of that project? And, and even if it's sort of a little bit more of a higher level, just here's what it's about, here's how it came to be, and, and this is sort of where it is today. I would love to just um, capture that because hearing that, you know, in conjunction with the story you just told about the first project is, is, is really incredible. Yeah, I have such a hard time doing things really high level, but I'm going to do my best. <laughs> the um, Lexington markets in Baltimore City, it's the longest continuously running public market in the country. It's been running without skipping a day for over 200 years. Uh, it's in a part of the west side of downtown Baltimore that at one point was the premier shopping district in our city. Every major department store was there. Anybody over 40 years old has a Lexington market story deep within their soul. Cool. Yeah. Uh, my, grandfather and father would tell you that Saturday or a weekend didn't start unless you started at Lexington market in the 1960s. When um, there was a lot of people leaving Baltimore city, we were a population of a million. We went down to 600,000. 
that part of West Baltimore got hit really hard. And today is a shell of its former self. Lexington Market is holding on by a thread. And the city realized that. And so they put out an RFP for a development group to come in and help them transform the market and set it up for another 200 years of success. In its current state, it wasn't sustainable. Mm -hmm. And so our company responded to the RFP and we were awarded the project. And we went and met with the city as they told us that we had been awarded the opportunity. And we were really clear. We said, look, don't say anything to anybody yet. We need to listen deeply throughout Baltimore for about nine months to understand if this is even possible. So almost every evening we were in a different community on a stoop in a basement at a church in a community meeting. And if we had an hour for the presentation, we took five quick, quick minutes to explain the soul of the market. And we had one question, what would it take for you, the people of Baltimore to fall in, Lex fall in love with Lexington market again? And then we just listened for 55 minutes. Over the course of the nine months, at the end of it, two North Stars had emerged on how this project could move forward. And we went back to the city and said, we're all in. Not only do we want to do this, but this has to happen. It will only work if you, as Baltimore City, agree to two guiding philosophies. The first is that this isn't a real estate project. If we look at it, at it as a real estate project, it will fail. This is an opportunity to prove that a single building brought to life in a really inclusive way can unite our city at one of its most divided times. It's the first North Star. The second North Star was that the people of Baltimore had continued to say that in its current condition, the market didn't represent the beautiful diversity of our city. Less than 5% of the vendors in the market were Black-owned businesses, and very few of them were city resident-owned businesses. And as a result of that, people of Baltimore, which is over 60% Black, didn't feel like they belonged, didn't feel like they were included, and didn't want to go support the market. But they said that if the market looked and felt like our city, they would be interested in supporting it. So the second thing was that if we were going to move forward with this, the city had to commit that the transformed Lexington market would represent the beautiful diversity of our city. So those with those two North stars, we set out on the process and we really through this in really inclusive approach of building it from the inside out with these guiding philosophies, started the process miraculously closed financing on it. And in, because this wasn't a small project. No, I think this was a $45 million project, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and we closed financing in February of 2020. A couple weeks later, the global yeah. pandemic hit at a time when 50% of restaurants and food businesses were closing their doors at a time when none of us knew if we would gather in a space ever again that needed to have thousands of people in it on a daily basis for it to work economically. And honestly, we thought we might've just made the biggest mistake of our life in moving something like this forward. But we trusted the process. We entrust, trusted the inclusive nature that it had been brought to life. The years of kind of pre-development work that had gotten us to that point. And so we announced the first round of vendor applications. We had 50 stalls to fill in the new market. Honestly, Chris, I would have been 
surprised if more than 10 vendors applied for those 50 stalls. At the end of the application rounds, we had over 500 applications from diverse small businesses throughout the Baltimore area. Over 50% of them were black owned businesses. Over 50% of them were city resident owned businesses and over 50% of them were women owned businesses. At this crazy time where nobody knew if food or gathering would ever happen again, Mm -hmm. they felt so invested. We had the, the message had spread throughout the city of Baltimore and Nobody wanted to see Lexington Market die on their watch because the hundreds and thousands and thousands of people who had been touched by this project over the course of the few years that we were in pre-development all felt that same sense of pride of ownership and authorship and what was going to be created. Mm. And they felt that the project belonged to them. And when something belongs to us, there's nothing that we won't do to make sure that it thrives. So look, I, it was, you know, it was, it was, it was a lifetime's worth of lessons and experiences that led to that moment. And it was the perfect kind of culmination of the continued quest to answer those two burning questions that started in me at 10 years old of why are we so divided and what are the creative ways that we can bridge those divides? And then the understanding of how to get there, how to build the groundswell, how to make sure that we don't claim ownership of the ideas that we help bring to life, the importance of reimagining industries so that we're leading with our purpose over our profit, all came together um, as Seawall worked quietly behind the scenes to help give Lexington at least another 200 years of life. So if I walk through Lexington Market on a on a Saturday morning, come downtown, come. What what am I going to find? What's that going to What's that going to look and feel like for for visitors who want to swing by and check it out? Yeah, I mean, look, I'm biased, right? I'm the wrong guy to ask this question to. Right? It's like, you ask me if I love a child. Yeah. Um, the new market is a replica of the exi- original 1910 shed building that was once there. The best compliment we get is when people walk through and ask us um, what year the original warehouse building was built in, right? It feels so beautifully Baltimore authentic um, and not shiny glass new box that it, that it could have become. Yeah. And it's going to be packed with the sights and smells of Baltimore, the diversity that exists in this incredible city, the mindset and the will and the drive and the hustle and grit of our biggest champions who are our small businesses, which is the reason that we thrive as a city and the reason that we will continue to succeed as, as a city. That. Um, so come through you and all the listeners. I will. I, I, um, yeah, I grew up uh, much of my life in, um, central and Northern Virginia and I definitely frequented Baltimore. So I'm excited to get back and, and that's going to be one of my stops without question. Thibaut, I really appreciate the deep dive into all of these topics because I think they're really important. And as I said, they just aren't really covered very frequently, um, and, and so as we begin to wrap up here, I want to hit you with one more big question. And that's just with all that you've accomplished so far, sort of all of these happenstance moments that have sort of like led you to the right place at the right time, even if it, you know, might not have felt like it in the moment, what do you see coming in front of you over the next, um, couple of years personal, personally or professionally, however you want to kind of tackle that, um, as you know, the world continues to change around us and, and opportunities Come and go. Like, what do you what do you see coming down the pipeline? Yeah, look, per- per- personally, um, I 
feel so blessed. Um, I have this incredible wife uh, who um, teaches me how to be the best version of myself every single day. Um, and I don't take any of that for granted. There is nothing more important than finding uh, true love. It allows us to be in complete alignment with our purpose, undistracted every single moment of every single day. We have these two incredible kids. They're 11 and 13 that are my greatest teachers. And I am so grateful for them and uh, the path that, uh, that we are all on together. And then professionally, I think the neatest thing, Chris, is that nothing that we do is our idea, right? It comes as a result of deeply listening to the communities that were invited to participate in their success. And so I, I think as a result of a couple decades of working in this inclu inclusive way, um, it's an honor to get the phone calls that we get on a daily and weekly basis from people from around the country um, who uh, are inviting us to participate in the projects that they're so passionate about. Mm. Um, and as long as those projects and opportunities fit it within the buckets of empowering communities, uniting cities and helping to launch really powerful ideas, um, then it's usually something that we can get pretty passionate about. Yeah. Well, I always like to wrap up with a couple of rapid fire questions. So let me build on that, on that last comment you had there. And, and I'm always curious from a developer's point of view, what the most exciting project you've seen across the country in the last year. And, and I want to put you on the spot a little bit because I know that you were going to choose <laughs> Lexington market. And I understand that it's your baby. Like you said, um, I know that you have bias there for sure. Is there any other project that comes to mind? Um, across the country. It could be Baltimore specific, but, but anywhere that you've seen, you're like, man, they just did a really good job there. You know, quick shout out. Cause I know the listeners love to go, you know, digest and take in really cool projects across the, across the country. Yeah. So, um, 30 or 40 years ago, uh, Jim Rouse, um, took a very industrial part of Baltimore on our waterfront and turned it into an incredible shopping tourist um, Baltimore experience uh, where they create a set of pavilions right on the water, opened everything up. And that Harbor became the heartbeat of our city in so many ways over the last 10 years or so, kind of like what happened to Lexington market that Harbor Place project has become a shadow of its former self. It's completely vacant today. There isn't a single merchant in any of the pavilions that exist there and is in deep need of love and reimagining. There's a company called MCB Real Estate run by a friend of mine, Dave Bramble, that has taken on the um, transformation of Baltimore's Harbor Place. And it's an inc in incredible hands. And Dave and his team have started this process of inclusively listening to all of Baltimore and figuring out how to uh, reimagine the Harbor Place so that it continues to be the heartbeat of our amazing city. Fascinating. Yeah. And I'll be sure to find some information about that and link that in the show notes as well, because I think that'll be a fun one to watch come together in the coming years. Um, one other quick question for you favorite book that you would recommend right now, either you're reading it right now, or it's just an all time favorite that you really enjoy. 
the, the, the greatest book ever written is The Alchemist by Paulo Coelho. Um, okay. that, that's not even up for debate. The, <laughs> the, um, the book that I just finished that I love is called Black Boy Smile by D. Watkins. Uh, he's a New York Times bestselling author from Baltimore. And I can't say enough about all of these books, but this most recent book that he's come out with um, was really eye-opening opening for me. Okay. We'll link to it. We'll buy it. We'll read it. We'll be in touch with you about that. Tivo, thank you so much again for your insight and the depth of the, the answers to the questions. This is huge. I really appreciate it. There's only one more thing to do here, which is to roll out the red carpet for you and tell our listeners and viewers where they can find you online and, and, and take a look at what you're up to. Yeah. Thank you, Chris. Uh, thank you for leading both of us on this journey together. Um, you, you can find me at Tebow Mannequin just about every place. LinkedIn, Tebow Mannequin, Instagram, Tebow Mannequin. I think those are my only two uh, social media platforms. I haven't figured out any of the other ones just yet. <laughs> Fair enough. Great, great honor and a pleasure to be with you today, Tebow. Thank you so much uh, for joining me. Thank you, brother. 